one has to realize that to have good multilateralism, you also need strong government. Governments that can be strong enough to work with others and to protect their own people at the same time. That's what we need. I know that the word multilateralism sounds to some people like globalization. It's not actually that. Multilateralism is the cooperation between countries to solve problems that are too big for a single country. You're listening to Finding Humanity, a new podcast from the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. And I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. For our inaugural season, we are proud to partner with The Elders to produce special edition episodes that add depth and context to topics covered on other episodes of Finding Humanity, including inequality, discrimination, and insufficient access to healthcare. In my conversations with members of The Elders, we create discussion around the urgent action needed to find solutions to global challenges, how to ensure we do not recreate mistakes of the past and provide practical advice to create a more equitable world. In today's episode, we tackle multilateralism and why effective global partnerships are key to sustainable development and the fight against existential threats, including the pandemic that we are facing today. We will also discuss the diminishing levels of trust in public leadership and how on the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, we can emerge from this crisis aligned with the values of the UN Charter. To explore these topics, I am joined by my co-discussant, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and chair of the Elders. I also have the honor of speaking with Dr. Gru Brundtland, who was the former prime minister of Norway. She was also former UN special envoy on climate change and former director general of the World Health Organization. I wanted to become a doctor like my father. I wanted to work for a better society with equal rights and with access to health. After studying medicine, Dr. Brentland went to Harvard University to study public health. As I came back to Norway after one year in Boston, I started in the Ministry of Health. Dr. Brentland's rise through Norwegian politics was remarkable. By 1981, she had become prime minister, both the youngest person and the first woman to ever hold that office in her country. In 1983, I was asked to lead a new international commission to look at the dangerous trends happening in nature, affecting people and creating trouble, environmental, but also developmental. Established by the United Nations, due to her leadership, it became known as the Brundtland Commission. And I put together uh, the commission And I said, I'm not doing it unless I can have more than half of the people from the developing world. There's no possibility to take care of the environment unless you realize that poor countries, developing world, has to be part of the solution. The Brundtland Commission published Our Common Future. This report is credited with coining the now common term, sustainable development. It's a great honor to be here to address the topic of sustainable development. To advance on the sustainable development goals and the Paris climate. You all accelerate sustainable development outcomes. 
The report was groundbreaking in its time and is still seen as a seminal moment in the advancement of inclusivity and development. Dr. Brundtland, who previously served as a Minister of Environment, notes the importance of multilateralism and the role of collaboration between nations in achieving sustainable development. Air pollution was a major issue at that time. We realized that from the high stacks in England, polluted air came over to Scandinavia and crossed over into Europe and created health problems. So I, I gathered the different arguments as we moved to make pollution agreements about issues that cross borders in the whole of Europe. There were coal plants all over Europe and in the Soviet Union at that time. And we had to negotiate deals, agreements about what is acceptable to avoid polluting cities from the burning of coal. Then you go to Kenya, where they were worried about, not so much about clean air, because the other things had higher priority for them. They didn't have clean water. They didn't have systems for, you know, healthy ways of dealing with everyday needs. A toilet, for instance. Everything is linked to everything else. Intersectionality of topics and challenges is one of the hallmarks of sustainable development. It considers that many global issues are not only related to each other, but also impact each other directly or indirectly. Addressing these challenges is an overarching goal of the multilateralism system. The Charter of the United Nations, which you are now signing, is a solid structure upon which we can build for a better world. The time for action is here now. The modern principles of multilateralism were established with the founding of the United Nations out of the ashes of the Second World War, marked by the signing of the UN Charter, which took place on June 26, 1945, in San Francisco. So the United Nations was established 75 years ago. This year is the 75th anniversary. How has the mandate or the need for multilateralism changed since the founding of the United Nations to where we are today? Well, I, I think the leaders at that time were very much aware, the main leaders who led the effort to create our institutions after the Second World War. They had learned from that terrible experience that we need to work across borders and the dead projects from earlier times of the League of Nations had gone apart. The League of Nations, founded in 1920 at the end of the First World War, was the first worldwide peacekeeping organization. The onset of World War II showed that the League had failed in its primary purpose, which was to prevent any future world war. The United Nations, in essence, replaced it after the end of World War II. But now a second world war became so global and had such enormous consequences that people were ready to really make a difference. However, it's clear the United States was a leader in this, together with the UK and small nations like Norway and Ireland, I'm sure, were supporting this. And so the experiences of those leaders led to radical approaches. And that has helped us for all the time after. Because when you look at all those institutions that already were created then, we needed them 
and we need them even more today. And we are dependent, small and large nations, equally on those. Yeah, and one of the strong motivations, of course, was never again, never again to have the scourge of war. And so what the elders are very concerned about is we need to reinforce all the values of multilateralism, particularly because that's the way to deal with a pandemic. We dealt with previous pandemics, and I'm sure Gru will speak to this, better because we had more cooperation. We're not dealing as well with COVID-19 because we lack the full cooperation. The G20 has not been fully expressing the global possibilities. The Group of 20, or the G20, is a collection of 20 of the world's largest industrialized and developing economies that come together to discuss international economic and financial stability. The nuclear issue is unraveling in a way that the elders are very concerned about. We're very strong defenders. I know that the word multilateralism sounds to some people like globalization. It's not actually that. Multilateralism is the cooperation between countries to solve problems that are too big for a single country. And that includes the nuclear issue. It includes climate change, the climate crisis. It includes a pandemic. It's linked to but separate from globalization as we perceive it. I think the concern that people have about globalization has confused and undermined a little bit defense of multilateralism. Mary, I'd like you to expand on that, please. So what is globalization for those that don't know the difference? Well, I think globalization in people's minds, at least, is more almost the global trading system with its very long supply chains. Now, it's also true that global trade has taken a lot of people out of poverty, particularly in countries like China and India, parts of Africa, just being able to trade. But that's different from the kind of essence of multilateral cooperation that we're talking about. Globalization can be defined as the process by which businesses or other organizations develop international influence or start operating on an international scale. It is also understood as the increased interaction and cooperation among people, companies, and governments across borders. In contrast, nationalism is a political ideology that promotes the interest of one's own nation and support for its own interests often to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. Recently, we have seen trends in nationalism on the rise globally. I asked Mary and Dr. Brundtland why they think we are seeing this trend unfold. I mean, you have leaders who are promoting ideas and values that are competitive to multilateralism, as if it could be taken away. You know, it's often easy when you speak to young children, and sometimes you have to think in those terms. Everybody understands that in a society, you need rules for traffic. It's simple to understand. You can't have cars driving on different sides of the road and in no direction. So the rules of society, people understand when they are local and very concrete. But in the bigger world, you need rules that cross those borders because we are one world where people are traveling. And even before globalization became a word that everybody was using, people were traveling. Norwegian sailors went across the world to Japan and came back. So this is not new. The world has been one for a long time, although it has changed dramatically over the decades. To have rules about trade, for instance, 
there is no way to have cooperation across countries unless you have certain rules about what you are allowed to sell, how it comes in, whether you can have customs or not, etc. Understand that no single nation can make rules for the big seas. Even the U.S. cannot make rules that everyone will accept unless we have a multilateral system. And if I could sort of add a bit about uh, what's happening during this COVID time, it's true that countries are understandably concerned to protect their people, to protect the elderly, to protect their health workers, their care workers, and they want the PPE equipment and they want the ventilators, etc. But it has become much more competitive than it used to be in a wrong way. Much less of the kind of support that was there during Ebola and SARS. Now, Gru, you were director general at the time. Can you speak to how, you know, we dealt with pandemics before in a better way because it was a more multilateral cooperation? Well, yes, it was clear to me when the reports came from Asia about this deadly respiratory disease that nobody has seen before, that we in WHO was the only responsible institution to try to take care of what it meant to avoid spread across the world. Dr. Brundtland is referring to SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which first appeared in China in 2002. It spread rapidly to 30 countries on all five continents and affected over 8,000 people, killing 812. During the spread of SARS, Dr. Brundtland served as Director General of the World Health Organization, a post that she assumed from 1998 to 2003. You know, it was helpful to me that I had been Prime Minister for many years because I was completely aware that no single country in the world, not China, where it started, they were covering it up, basically. Not the United States, the biggest country otherwise, could do that on behalf of everybody. There was only this institution that had a mandate that was given by the world's at that time 193 member countries. And we mobilized the research community across the world. Because we, in the WHO, there are mechanisms, long traditions of expert committees, and all the scientists across the world listens and also responds to the needs of WHO to get full knowledge and shared knowledge across the world. In 2002, she noted that due to an unprecedented global collaboration in public health, the World Health Organization can say that SARS outbreaks have been contained worldwide. Here, Dr. Brundtland unpacks the differences between SARS and COVID-19. The COVID-19 has uh, not as high a mortality as SARS had. That means that the debate about the level of risk and the scare of getting infected has been different. You have seen discussions inside countries about whether it is more dangerous than the regular flu or something. This never happened with SARS because everyone knew it had a 20% mortality. Nobody even thought about not trying to stop it. That was one. There's one other issue. The SARS virus was not as infectious as the COVID-19 is. The COVID-19 
has maybe five times the infectivity. So it infects much more quickly, many more people, which meant that as it spread out of China, which it did early on, certainly already in December, it had spread across the world many places. Although we didn't know, it had already spread. So we are in this much more difficult situation now, where I believe there's probably not a single country in the world that doesn't have the virus. And of course, many of the tragedies are ahead of us in poor countries where they still have not had the high numbers. So that's why we have to struggle as quickly as possible to get a vaccine so that we can avoid many of the tragedies that are even not there yet. And one of the things that you mentioned, Dr. Brentland, which I think is important, is that we're seeing a politicization around which countries we're choosing to restrict travel to. And that's what we saw in the beginning of COVID. You know, we had a travel ban in the United States for Europe minus the UK. It's an issue that I think is something that's on the forefront of a lot of people's minds as it relates to challenging multilateralism and challenging human rights values across the board. After the SARS experience, you know, we initiated strengthening what was already the only international convention in place between countries on health, which was international health regulations. They gave the duty to countries to report immediately when they have something coming up that could create a risk. So those regulations were strengthened and in 2005 decided upon and in that international health regulations, there is a restrictive attitude to using travel constraints. It took time before anyone across Europe started discussing travel limitations because the principle had been debated and agreed that it had to be advised from WHO and that it had to be very carefully monitored and not really used because of some of the issues you were raising now. So we need to have travel restrictions, but they have to be openly discussed. There has to be a multilateral system to have agreements about what is the right way to do it. So as we now reconsider and revisit these issues, there will be, I think, a modification. Because what happened was, as countries had outbreaks all over Europe, dangerously, you know, completely overwhelming their health systems, they put in travel restrictions. What could they do as responsible leaders? Although there was no advice from WHO to do so because of the international health regulation. So, you see, one has to realize that to have good multilateralism, you also need strong governments, democratically led, preferably, governments that can be strong enough to work with others and to protect their own people at the same time. I asked Mary how we maintain accountability within multilateralism. I think we do need accountability, obviously, but it's the competitiveness in a putting your country first way that is not helpful. And if we had more of a multilateral, organized, managed approach, that would be much better, especially obviously now for the Global South. When we get the vaccine, who will get it? I mean, I've been part of a signing as Gru and others have been to support, you know, that when vaccines come, they will be accessible for everyone. It's absolutely vital. But it's not guaranteed in the current 
atmosphere that's very competitive and that it could be that the rich world will want to vaccinate all and then the poor world will be thought about. And that's what we want to prevent. And that's why it is important to think about multilateralism. I, I want to ask you both, do you think that there's a decline in trust towards multilateral institutions? Well, some people are trying to uh, create mistrust. And of course, when things are said and repeated over years, then some people listen to that. Here, Dr. Brundtland acknowledges that while some of the criticism of the UN and multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization might be valid, we need to invest into making them better, not simply discrediting them. So probably, yes, there is a spreading question mark. Maybe Trump is partly right. I mean, I'm sure he spreads this kind of thinking. And unless we speak out, others speak out and explain, like we are trying to do here, about why it is important to protect and to support and to fund and to improve our international institutions, then some people will listen and believe that you can live in this world, you know, America first or whatever first, as an ideology. And we are seeing, you know, uh, a populism and a, a nationalism and a counter to multilateral cooperation. I mean, I just think back to the year 2015, in September 2015, when 193 countries in a messy negotiation, because negotiations at that level are messy, and, you know, that's no problem. They are messy, but they reach a compromise. And we got the 2030 Agenda, which is full of human rights and gender language, lots of good things for the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals are a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all, set in 2015 by the United Nations General Assembly and intended to be achieved by the year 2030. These 17 goals were agreed on by all nations and are part of the UN Resolution 71, also known as the 2030 Agenda. And then we got the Paris Climate Agreement in December that year. The Paris Agreement is a landmark environmental accord that was adopted by nearly every nation in 2015 to address the dangers of climate change. That was somehow the high point of multilateralism, and that's only five years ago. We can come out of COVID more aware of being together in a multilateral way because we still face this looming crisis, this existential threat of climate change. And young people around the world are saying to us, please listen to the science, take the steps and give us a future. One thing I want to just push further on, also when it comes to diminishing public trust, is this idea that we're not making perceived progress on the tangible outcomes of several of these agreements, whether we're looking at the Sustainable Development Goals. Prior to that, we had the Millennium Development Goals. How do we, again, instill more trust in institutions while also looking at pushing and advocating for more actual progress to happen? Well, you know, when you think about having been part of it, Mary, as you have been and I have been, in negotiations, there are progressive voices. I mean, countries that are progressive, there are NGOs that are active and are really pushing, like they did in the climate agreement negotiations and in other such, and in the SDG uh, process as well. Now, then you have countries that are kind of counter voices and you get into compromises. But often, some of the progressive voices 
do prevail and you get a document of which I think the SDG document is impressive. It illustrates what the most progressive and most constructive voices worked hard for, maybe for years and decades. And then there are some middle of the road, leaning back, thinking, and some of them don't do that so enthusiastically. And so the debate goes on, on in multilateral forum. You know, you get setbacks and you have to renegotiate reproductive health and rights. I don't know how many times since I was a young physician, I have been pushing in international negotiations because it's possible to re-enter the anti-voices, you see, which means we need the NGO activity. We need accountability. We need people to put, continue having pressure. Otherwise, you get setbacks. And, and it is important that countries do stand up for the values of multilateralism. And I do think we haven't seen enough of this. We've seen, you know, significant countries on the populist, their country first side. And we don't see countries standing up enough. There was a reasonable defense of the WHO at its assembly, at the World Health Assembly, in the sense that the letter that President Trump wrote, you know, in other words, America did not succeed in really putting a wedge there because governments did not allow it. Mary is referring to the repeated attempts by U.S. President Donald Trump to discredit the World Health Organization. Here, she notes the important role of the G20. The G20 now would be very important in July. How are they going to respond to the very major issues of both third-level southern countries' debt, poor countries' debt, which has to be uh, dramatically relieved in line with them committing to the Sustainable Development Goals. I think that's the trade-off, that they commit to the Sustainable Development Goals and their debt is significantly forgiven because it has to be at the moment. Otherwise, they won't be able to cope. And also the way in which we can get the overall global investment for the global economy. I want to ask uh, quickly about the Security Council. The UN Security Council has a primary responsibility under the UN Charter for maintenance of international peace and security. But there's a lot of scrutiny around the UN Security Council. Can you tell us what you think is not working with the setup and how can it be fixed? Well, you know, this has been a struggle, of course, for decades. It is not representative of all our countries and all our people. Even though you have a number of elected officials in our countries, in addition, the Security Council Permanent Five had such a hold on all the most critical issues. The Security Council is the UN's most powerful body and has the primary responsibility for maintaining international peace and security. It is the only UN body with the authority to issue legally binding resolutions that can be backed up by sanctions, blue-helmeted peacekeepers, or by force of arms. It consists of five permanent members who were all the principal victors of the Second World War, all of whom are now nuclear-armed states. China, the United States, France, the United Kingdom, and the Russian Federation. There are also 10 temporary members at any one time, elected by the UN General Assembly for a two-year term. And when they disagree, they are sometimes not even ashamed, but they continue carrying their national flag and insisting on their own interests, even in global major human rights concerns 
in crisis and conflict, etc. But the thing is, it is really hard to be able to get change. I'm sorry, but we have to put pressure on these countries so that they behave. And they are, of course, some of them at least, feeling the pressure from people when they make the wrong decisions or avoid making decisions. It is important to note that the UN Security Council permanent members have veto powers that they often exercise. This means that one country can unilaterally stop an official peacekeeping action. It's really kind of sad that uh, at a time when we're seeing the nuclear threat increasing, nuclear agreements unraveling, which the elders have been very vocal about, that we have a weaker UN system because of the failure of the Security Council to be able to agree on major issues of addressing conflict and humanitarian concern. The very mandate of the Security Council in particular, human security globally, it has failed on over and over. And that has undermined the quality. The G20 was seen and is still seen as, you know, another forum that can be important, particularly in the context of this pandemic, because if the G20 could come together, but we've always in the past seen the G20 kind of led supportively by the United States. And now we're seeing the opposite, um, an administration, which won't last forever, but an administration that's seeking to undermine the G20 and the UN and multilateral fora. So this is a very bumpy time, but I actually, like you, grew. I mean, I think we're charged anyway as elders to be hopeful, but I am on the hopeful side. And I want to ask about something I think related to looking at at moving forward, and you're both optimists, and I would consider myself in the club of optimists. No, I'm a prisoner of hope. I learned that from Archbishop Tutu. (laughs) Better than an optimist. Prisoner of hope. (laughs) I love love that, absolutely. So put me in that prison with you. Uh, But what political steps do leaders have to take to pay more than just lip service to the values of the UN Charter? Because we are seeing a lot of lip service. What are the actual steps to implementing that? I don't think it's right to say that so many leaders are paying lip service. I think many leaders and many more leaders will understand after what we are now through the importance of leadership, which is also multilateral. They will know there is no way to save the world economy in this situation unless, as Mary said, about debts for the developing nations and many poor countries, But generally, investing in the economy in a way that creates possibility for humans in every country to raise out and above and through this terrible pandemic, there needs to be a big crisis effort, which has to be multilateral in nature. You know, Mary, you and I and others have been supporting Gordon Brown's initiative, his letter to the G20 because he was in the middle of the last financial crisis, 2008. Gordon Brown is the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He is leading efforts to persuade the G20 to support the developing world as it tackles COVID-19. And his initiatives at that time made an important difference that many countries across the world supported initiatives that were absolutely essential to lessen the burden of that terrible economic crisis. And the same, and at least at that level, is necessary now. As we come out of this crisis, 
and looking forward. What is the role of individuals in building society back better with the UN's vision of we the peoples as drivers of change? As I said, and I will repeat it, there is no way to influence governments to be forward-leaning and taking charge and being responsible and being cooperative, you know, unless you have a public interest and a public pressure there to require leaders, parliaments, governments to do the right thing. So the importance of the uh, civil society is absolutely crucial now and in the future. And it does seem to me that there is a lot of discussion about how to widen the circle of a kind of broad civil society pressure of that kind, as Gru has rightly said. But I think also, in many ways, COVID is causing us to think, to think more deeply about being human, about being with our immediate family, about taking steps to avoid anybody being infected thinking about the vulnerable in the community, thinking about health workers, care workers, the low-paid cleaners, etc., who are so vital. We can be human consumers in a thoughtful way. I think it's very interesting that the 75th anniversary of the UN is taking place in a year of COVID-19. It's interesting that we were not on course for a safe future. That we have to remember. So business as usual was not bringing us to where we needed to be. And it was compounded with terrible inequalities and inequities. And so I'm hoping that, you know, this thought process that we're all going through in the 75th year will actually encourage us to, as the UN has called for, build back better in a real sense of more sustainable, more human, more compassionate, more equal. And that, you know, we will see the flowering of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is at the heart of what the UN stands for. I want to thank Mary Robinson and Dr. Gru Brundtland for joining us on this special edition episode of the Finding Humanity podcast. As we look ahead, the urgency of global cooperation seems more important than ever, not only between governments, but also between all stakeholders, including civil society, businesses, donors, concerned citizens, and beyond. Most of the issues that we face today spill across global borders and require global action, from refugees to the threat of nuclear warfare, to racism, to climate change, poverty, and to gender inequality. Nations can continue to honor their own agendas while upholding their commitment to the UN Charter to have universal respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all people, to achieve higher standards of living, and to address economic, social, and health-related problems. In addition to looking past geographic borders, we must also break the silos between sectors and issues and recognize that sustainable solutions require us to be more intersectional and collaborative. For an extra dose of inspiration, please check out other episodes of Finding Humanity, where we share real-life stories of courage and purpose to put a face to the complex global issues discussed in this episode and other Elders episodes. In our human stories, we unpack hope in the face of injustice and courage amidst adversity.
Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like our show, please rate it and leave us a review to encourage other people to tune in. You can also follow us on social media. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. Our executive producer is Camille Laurente. Associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas. Assistant producers, Diana Galbraith. And our research lead is Martina Vanat. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on our next episode.